0: Hello, dear listener, and welcome to Null Pointers. We are your hosts, Mark, Stephen, and Gerald. And today we will be talking all about virtual dev environments. But since we are on the topic of virtual dev environments, Another thing that many of us sometimes use is uh, Docker, maybe in a day-to-day setup. And I recently updated my Docker environment and I was surprised that uh, Docker will now start asking for money to use it so that it used to be a free service. So you could install Docker desktop on Windows and on Mac OS to run your Linux containers. You actually don't need that piece of software if you're running on Linux. But most developers that I know in the day-to-day business, they do not use Linux. And now it seems that if your company has got more than 250 employees or has a bigger turnaround than ten million something, um, it, it appears to be costing. And some people seem to be very upset with that. What are what are your thoughts on these things when suddenly free software starts to cost money? Well, it's
1: kind of an interesting model that suddenly, you know, it's I think it's a popular model for a certain type of business where you're selling Drugs. Um, where you first okay, okay, getting some stuff okay, for
0: free? Okay, this is escalating quickly, but okay. Yes, well,
1: you know, I, I have this friend. He's not really a good friend. He, who tells me about this stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm, um, I'm but, right here. I'm right here. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He's on the line. Um, but yeah, so it's it's kind of interesting. I don't know much about the details, to be very honest. Um, I think kind of like the the engine. So maybe that's the CLI tool that remains free, and I think that's open source as well. So you can do a whole lot of things with that, but all the, all the other tools um, now suddenly cost money, which is you know I get it; they have to make money, which is fine. But yeah, it's it's kind of interesting that it's all for free, and then suddenly out of the blue one day, boom! Now it costs money. I think you have to be a pretty big company, like you said, uh, the, the 250 employees is about right. So you know, if you're a company that size, then you probably can also pay for the stuff that you're using here, but still, it's it's not a very pleasant surprise to wake up to, I guess.
0: At least it was for me. I mean, I just pressed install and suddenly go like, well, hello there. No, we will cost money. And you're like, well, well, well. And, and I mean, my company's not that big. And so we, we do not fit into the category where you would have to pay. But I still think it's like, uh, it, it's always psychologically it's not the smartest move to give something away for free and then suddenly charging a price uh, that often does not resonate well with people but i can also understand the other side where you are a company providing a service that many people use and love every day and you are not earning any money with it so you some somehow have to you have to keep the lights on you have to pay uh, people's salaries and people usually don't like to have a salary that is around free so yeah I think uh, hmm. the business model somehow has to fit in that you can pay those bills. Um, it appears that Docker saw uh, an opportunity to get some revenue streaming on a service that a lot of people actually quite like. I've tried to pay the rent with GitHub stars or Twitter likes, but they, they wouldn't take it. So, ah, so I mean, Jeez. Yeah. yeah Banks do, these days. The line, do you know who I am? Yeah. Do you know?
1: <laughs> almost almost 10K subscribers on YouTube. Do you know yeah. who I am? Come yeah, on.
0: Just saying. Yeah, but nothing, nothing. Okay, well, moving along, virtualizing your dev environment. So I think in my most day-to-day use, uh, I I install my development tools on my machine and I use them there. And virtualizing your dev environment means I somehow install all of that stuff on a virtual machine and then I can just use that VM. Uh, Another good thing about that could be that if I ever created that VM, I could then share it amongst my colleagues, and we would then have a standard dev setup. So no more problems with uh, who is using which version of what tool. Uh, we're all using the same. So a lot of pain and uh, some integrity gritty details that could uh, cause some pain are suddenly removed. And the other thing is, I always have a clean setup if I use this approach. I mean, if I install stuff from clients on my computer, which I sometimes tend to do. I worked as a contractor. So you install the VPN client from company X, from company Y and from company Z. And suddenly when your machine starts up, you got 50,000 VPN clients popping up and asking if you want to connect right now to this VPN network. And that can be a bit of a hassle. Also, removing those clients is not always the easiest part. So, yeah, uh, I can see many reasons why you want to um, virtualize your VM. W- what are the options that we have?
2: Well, I've uh, used a few, one being the VMware Fusion, which is, uh, well, it, I I typically use it to, I'm, I'm on a Mac, so... I need windows somehow you could bootstrap windows on there i think that's what it's called where you basically split your disk and you install windows in the other partition and when booting uh, your mac you get to choose which one you want well that's that's a hassle switching back and forward so virtualizing is the next step and the first tool i used for that was vmware fusion which obviously vmware is a big player in that area and it basically allows you to run windows in a separate window next to your mac it has some options too make it a bit more of a seamless experience and it it worked pretty well. And I think the last tool I used for that was parallels, which is a different, uh, company that does pretty much something similar. You install windows into a virtual machine and run that right beside your Mac and allowing you to simply copy paste around and all that good stuff. So that that's the two I've used. I don't know if there's any others to be honest, but. I typically run into the issue that disk space is becoming an issue because that separate VM, obviously, in and of itself is already quite some gigabytes in size. It has a, a separate virtual hard drive, so it needs at least the space to install Windows, the, the space to actually install your projects and all the tools that you want to put into that. And that's that's taking away from your MacBook in this case, meaning that that one could actually run out of space which isn't a great experience because fixing that is, well, either throwing the lot away or or complete hell, basically.
0: I remember when I started out, I think I used a lot of VirtualBox, which was originally by Sun, and I think now it's also property of Oracle that they use it, and you could have that for free. So that was quite a popular uh, option when I was using that back in the day. And you you had to install everything on your laptop, basically, because external hard disks, they were so slow... But virtual machines, they anyway have got not the best rap for being super fast and snappy. But when you put that on a slow external hard disk, it gets even slower, which was not that much fun. But I mean, these days with USB-C and all the nice speedy SSDs, external things, I think you can actually get quite a good amount of performance by putting these also in an external drive and using that for your virtual machine. So that's that's been an option where people use it. I mean, we at our company, we have got dev environments for automation setup, so for PLCs. And usually, uh, every version is has got some compatibility issues with the older one and parallel installs, they're not quite as easy as with Visual Studio. So they tend to have their VMs for certain setups when they're developing. And you can also have virtual machine you can have the you can have a server with virtual machines on them by vm there that's like one one i know and so yeah you could use it remote but then you got all the lagginess and the server has to be super performance to to support that and sometimes you just download it but space usually is an issue and and it's also it's not the quickest thing so i'm someone that gets quite wound up when the there is a lag while i'm typing that's just uh, not something i want to see uh so yeah, that that's that's something that I'm not a big fan of. How about you, Gerald? Yes. Also not a fan. Uh no, kind of like the same
1: like um what you mentioned. I've used VMs, I've used it kind of side by side because, you know, in if we look at where our roots are, the examined world, then you want to maybe I've always had the best experience. Let's put it like that on a Mac with running iOS and Android, which is the majority of the work. But sometimes you also have to do some stuff on Windows, so you would have Windows on the side. But um, yeah, uh, big VMs. um, Every uh, every issue basically has been addressed here. Also with like you know maybe licensing can become an issue because it's funny, right? That we can uh, do Windows on a Mac, but the other way around is not allowed purely by license. Basically, Um, there's a lot of people I see still asking about like yeah, like, oh, I want to develop for iOS, but I can't afford a Mac or I don't want to buy a Mac or whatever the reason is. Um, can I get it virtual? And technically you can, there is solutions out there, uh, but purely by looking at the Apple license, um, it's, it's illegal. Um, so, you know, you, you can not do it. Um, and so you shouldn't. Uh, there's, there's other kind of services in the cloud, um, which have actual Mac hardware standing around in a warehouse uh, that you can log into remotely and then use i think we've we've mentioned that in other episodes as well but yeah so the other options uh we already had it uh, in the news about docker of course you know that is like the container based um, so it doesn't bring a full VM it's it's what is it actually? I don't know how to to kind of describe it. Um, you have this container, which is usually Linux based because Linux is very you know modular and can be very small, just uh, the bare basics for file io and that kind of stuff, the frameworks that you need and that's about it. Um, so you know that makes the images very small. so I think like the very basic docker container is, couple Of tens of megabytes, so 10, 20, 30. I don't know, something like that, maybe even smaller, uh, but not much. So, and that makes it very easy to just uh, put the things in there, the bare minimum that you need for the environment. Um, and then through Docker, you can just log in on that, and you can basically have all these tiny um, VMs next to each other, and you can just throw them away if you don't need them anymore, or you can plug one in if you do need it. But as I mentioned a couple of times, it is Linux mostly, so you know, and with in the Microsoft ecosystem. That's becoming less and less of a problem because we have everything running on Linux now. Uh, We have also the other way around. We have Windows subsystem Linux. um, So basically Linux inside of Windows. so we have all these variations and everything is becoming more and more cross-platform. But if you look at like, I think we will we'll touch on that in a little bit, uh, like the code spaces, and you talk to more of the enterprise customers, they have a lot of like desktop applications, which are running on Windows. Um, which is, you know, is going to be a problem to actually get those in a container and get it running with with all the Linux stuff going on there. So it's cool solutions for like the more cutting edge technologies. But if you're working on this legacy application,
0: then it's not
1: going to benefit you very much.
0: I agree. So I think the, the super sexy thing about Docker is, I mean, Steven mentioned it before, whenever you make a classical VM. Uh, You install the operating system and install your software on top of that and everything has to boot up. It uses quite a lot of RAM and the Docker uses a a smart mechanism that's implemented into Linux that you can fork like processes. So you just copy what you need and it uses the same uh, operating system that it's been installed on. Uh, for these operations this means it uses a lot less uh, resources and it's also means it's like super snappy to start up because you don't have to do all that much work the counterpart which some people say is which which is a fact is it's not quite as isolated so if you've got a classical vm everything is running in that vm there's no sharing really going on and it's easier to break out of a docker container and do some naughty stuff than it is to break out of a classical vm i mean that's just there but we're not talking about setting up our environments for, for deployment. I mean, we're talking about dev setups. And I think uh, you said it there, Gerald. Um, if you're on the new stack that supports Linux, because Docker, even though it is supported for Windows, even in the dev setup, it's usually uh, it's recommended that you use Linux for it uh, because it just, yeah, it, it just works better together. And so you probably will want to be developing .NET Core for this, but you could set up a Docker container where you have your database installed and maybe your .NET uh, core version or .NET 5 or .NET 6, uh, whatever you're using for development uh, in your team, and everybody can clone that container uh, down to their working space, and then you can hook up Visual Studio Code into your Docker container, and the Visual Studio Code is locally on your computer, but all the processing then actually is done via that Docker container. So I think the the advantage there is, again, standardized setup, and uh, whenever you have a new member coming on board in your team, he literally has to install two things or maybe three things. So he installs Visual Studio Code, he installs the Docker runtime, and then he clones that container and off he goes. He doesn't have to do a lot more fiddling. So I think that's something that's quite sexy. But what about sharing these Docker containers, aka host environments? Gerald, you said it before with. GitHub code spaces. So I think this is like the the next step that you can do. So you can have your Docker container running locally, but maybe you just don't have the compute. Maybe you just want to have some more power or maybe you're on the go. I mean, yeah. So that's kind of the interesting thing here, right?
1: Uh, we've handled now. Kind of more like the traditional first version of virtual environment, which is a regular VM, which you can also already host in Azure, right? But if you, uh, depending on your needs, that can be a costy thing. Um, and then we have Docker, which you know makes it much easier to run locally, but still you have some restrictions and also sharing it. Or um, again, the compute thing can become a a bottleneck. So then you have the third option, which is kind of like the code spaces, or you also have Gitpod, I think, which was uh, a little bit earlier, where you can basically run that Docker container and you can configure all the things and run it in the cloud. So you don't need anything more than a browser to actually connect to it. Uh, depending on you know how you set things up, you can configure it with your own, um, um, what is it? Docker, I don't know, it has a name with your own Docker configuration at least. It will pull down all the latest bits, the Linux um, flavor that you want, um, all the frameworks in pre-installed POP if that's what you want. Uh, .NET Core, all that kind of awesome stuff. Um, and you can just, you know, um, basically your browser or VS Code in this case, uh, you can also use that, is is nothing but a glorified text editor. And all the actual compute, all the heavy lifting is happening in the cloud. So that's kind of exactly what GitHub Codespaces is. You will just have an interface that is precisely like Visual Studio Code, because I think Visual Studio Code is a electron e- or or something like that at least uh, application so even you know running it uh, locally on your desktop um, is still kind of web-based so you can just as easily load that in the browser and that's exactly what github is doing Uh, but you can still i already mentioned it you can also run it from vs code on your desktop which will give you a little bit more flexibilities and capabilities but you can just go to a repository and say, Hey, spin me up a new code space. It will pull down that repository. That repository can have a dot code spaces, I think. So, kind of like a hidden folder with um, some extra configuration that will pull down extra extensions, which will be installed in Visual Studio Code and have all this kind of configuration files, bring in the connection strings that you need or. Um, other things that you might need for developing that specific um, project and it will just you know it will be there you can basically in within 30 seconds you will have that project installed running and you can make your first edit so kind of like the goal for github code spaces was to make the readme obsolete i mean sure that still is useful so you know kind of like a pun on that but You don't need to have full, a lot of readme's contain a whole set of steps that you need to take before even getting to compile the project, right? You have to have this prerequisite on your machine. You have to have the stars are aligned. It has to be full moon, those kinds of things. And we don't want that. That should be out of your readme. You just have to open that code space and boom, you can just start coding within 30 seconds, basically. And all of that um, is running on Linux-based containers, whatnot, all the good stuff that we just mentioned. Um, Like I said, your text editor is just a glorified text editor. You will still have IntelliSense, all kinds of good stuff. Um, But whenever you press that compile button, it will actually compile in the cloud. I think you can scale from like, you know, one core, four gigabytes to 32 cores, 64 gigabytes of RAM or something like that. I don't know the exact numbers, but it was something like that. Um, I think later on there will be SKUs which will have um, more GPU power. So uh, that's more for like the AI side of things. And that's kind of the cool thing, right? You can access all these kinds of hardware that are very hard to come by. Uh, first of all, and second of all, if you can even get it, it will be very expensive. And just for running that one-time AI experiment side project uh, that you're never going to finish anyway, let's be honest, it's it's quite expensive to, to get all that stuff, right? So it. Definitely has its usage. And, um, you know, all the scenarios, the, the old school VM. Um, the local Docker container, GitHub code spaces, all have
0: different requirements, different needs, different costs. Oh man, you bring back the memories there with those setup scripts. Uh, it just, it just, just came back in in waves when you when you said that. I remember being once on a on a project where uh, I was I had to was on the next, and then a person said, "Well, you just have to run this script, and then you start running the script, and then suddenly the script fails because oh no, you still have to install this software bit because otherwise you cannot connect to that." service so then you install the software bit and then you have to restart again from fresh and then there's again breaking changes and i mean someone has to maintain that script Uh, also i mean those those mistakes or those error prompts that came out i mean someone had to ensure that that's also properly working and it's just it can be such a hassle and i don't know i mean are we really moving again back to terminal and server systems where you just buy the cheapest uh, hardware that you can get with a nice keyboard so the typing is nice but otherwise very slim compute and and share the entire uh, massive compute power? I hope not.
2: (laughs) (laughs) uh, No, I I don't think we will. I think companies still have value in in not putting everything in the cloud, I would say.
0: Yeah, I think you're right there. I mean, uh, for for one thing, uh, you're not always connected to the interwebs. I mean, uh, even though a lot of, I mean, there is this, punt on the internet like, well, if you have no internet as a developer, what are you going to do? I mean, you can't install any NPM or NuGet packages because you usually have to have a connection to the internet for that. And, well, if you're trying to interact with some parts of the API, well, you probably want to look up those documentation files on that and guess where those are? Again, on the interwebs. Uh, so, yeah, I think there is a, a, lot of, a lot of things that actually require an active connection, but sometimes I'm still quite happy that I can do some things which I don't need a lot of bandwidth. And I think those is those are some of the concerns that people have when they when you say, hey, uh, you can have your Docker environments uh, or your GitHub code spaces in the cloud rent that super expensive i9 gpu enabled beast of a of a development environment and but still needs so much bandwidth to to even operate it
1: and that's just one thing right i mean the other thing is kind of like about the data i guess or connecting to um, on-premise things that you might have lying around again if you go like Uh, the more corporate environments um, then you might have your all your data on a local server or maybe you know you have a test environment or a whatever environment uh, that you want to connect to 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 connect to a database or you have everything secured as you should have Um, so there's still a lot of things to consider for your development environment um, with maybe some two-factor authentication going on and um, I think they're they're for GitHub Codespace specifically, they're working on things um, to connect to your local networks to make that scenario more um, accessible as well. And like I mentioned, like, you know, there's a lot of the enterprise and, and uh, just projects overall that do a lot with desktop development, right? So this right now is perfect for your web scenarios or maybe CLI tooling or libraries, something like that. Um, But if you're going to go more towards um, UI based stuff, so WinForms, WPF, anything that runs on your Windows desktop or let's stay close to home and your examine um, um, emulator simulator kind of stuff, um, that's hard, right? Because then you have to either cast the applications that are running from that local environment to your environment somehow. Uh, or you got to have access to um, you know, that, that environment that it's running on. And then you are basically just back to the VM running in the cloud where you're connecting to. So there's still a lot of things to figure out there. Um, and I'm sure that there are very smart people who are going to come up with solutions for that. But yeah, there is there's still a long way to go, but it's very exciting technology.
0: I think so, too. I mean, you brought up two really interesting topics like the, the emulators and the, the, the local devices. And I have seen people making it work for IoT devices. So I think the main thing is still, if you use a Docker VM for your main dev setup, it will be running on Linux. And some things, they will not be able to really run on Linux. So Linux is not Mac OS, even though they share a lot from the underpinnings. It's still a different system. So you will not be able to compile your iOS app on a Linux system—you have to use the toolchain from Apple, which is only available for macOS. And you—you you know, there is no way how you can legally right now run that thing on Linux. And I think some scenarios they—they they will be more straightforward. So I—I I could think I could see a way how you could say, hey, you can bind certain ports locally into the cloud-enabled Docker container. I have seen people doing this magic. And so you could press F5 on your Visual Studio Code, maybe one day, and then it will be running your app on your Android device that is plugged in, into your local computer, which I think is pretty cool, even though some people might say that sounds like quite a lot of effort to show you Hello World on your mobile device. I, I think some scenarios will be possible, others, they, they will be needing more trickery like WinForms, I think you would always need a Windows computer there too, just as for iOS.
2: And I was just thinking as well, um, with putting all this stuff in the cloud, I can assume there are also obstacles on the legal side of things. I mean, some companies might not want their data to be somewhere in a random cloud or they, they much prefer to have it on machines that they can manage, um, themselves, even though you as a user are using them, but obviously there is software to, to keep them in in line. But yeah, I can, I can imagine companies not wanting that as well.
0: That's actually an interesting point you're bringing up there, because if you, if you think about it right now, most of the people, they will clone a Git repository to their local computer and it's then on your device. And if you then leave set company, I mean, you have got the entire code base on your computer. So you could walk out with the code base and do stuff with that, sell it. I don't know, evil stuff, What, well, whatever. And if you use this um, remote compute setup, I mean, you could say, okay, I have a server inside of my company that is running these Docker uh, containers or, or VMs where people have to log in to do the development and the code will never leave any company uh, service because you won't be able to check out the code onto a local device they're only like a remote session so you could maybe go through and make screenshots of all the code or or something like that but yeah otherwise you are it's it's a lot more effort to to do something like that i mean there, there are arguments like that in the field why this setup is actually even good for yeah preventing theft of of data or to to ensuring that only certain people have access to certain parts but I think we I think we mentioned it before about maybe episodes of specific to code spaces or
1: whatnot but um, I think we we talked about now like you know having the resources to actually run all the stuff on your local computer um, getting started on a new job or maybe consulting but there is another I mean this enables a lot of new scenarios as well I mean there's a lot to do about like the hiring process of the big companies so maybe the the interview process where you have to do uh, little code challenges or assignments or whatnot and show the other person how you're actually doing things. Uh, It would be very interesting to see how that all ties into this, right? Because um, you also have the other kind of feature in in GitHub now where you can go to a repository or a PR and you press the the dot, the period key on your keyboard, and then it will go to github.dev instead of github.com and then the whole repo stuff after it. And it will open kind of like the Visual Studio Code editor still Uh, But now with the whole repo already loaded and you won't have the compute power like with um, code spaces, but you can do some things. Um, I've seen people run some of the the, the notebook stuff or something like that. I don't know, something that can maybe interpret it or something like that. and you can just you know go through the repository a little bit easier with you know going through the file system instead of going to uh, all the web pages on GitHub. But so that is something that is very lightweight and very easy to implement. So another thing, like I said, would be uh, very interesting for like the more interview or maybe the classroom scenarios. That would be very cool too, where you can just have um, you know Chromebooks or something like that, which are very lightweight. Um, hand those out to all your students, um, open them up, and within seconds you're inside of a dev environment and Um, everyone is ready to go instead of, you know, also there for like your your educational purposes if you have to spend a whole day or, or half a day with just setting up all the bits that you uh, need to um, start actually uh, teaching them the materials, then that's not great, right? That's a lot of lost time that you don't want to have to deal with. Um, actually, that brings back memories from way back when, uh, <laughs> when, when in school and they had all these machines hooked up and the machines would be re-imaged every now and again. Um, so it would just be clean. Maybe they did it every night. I can't even remember. Um, everything was gone, and then everything was was back to its initial state, uh, which was very annoying for some things as well. But um, I guess you know that's that's something that you can uh, kind of lock down with this as well. I guess um, so. There's still a lot of scenarios to to explore with this as well, and uh, it's going to be kind of exciting.
0: I remember giving a few Xamarin courses uh, a few years ago, and you the, the process there was just setting up each student computer individually. And that was quite a task. So you had to ensure that the right, uh, it was it, it was not the, the good and glory days that we have today. I think today the setup process would be a lot easier with all the effort that was put into Visual Studio and, and smoothing out the tooling stuff there, but you had to ensure that. Xcode was installed, the right Android runtime, uh, Visual Studio had to be installed and, and some other bits and pieces. And then of course they installed it with a different user that then the course user would use and there were like some file paths that were were not matching and so that user could then not start up the stuff. And it was just like as a normal as a normal developer, I never even thought about using a different account to set up a system than the other way around. But I remember the first times uh doing that it was always like, okay, uh we have to reinstall this stuff so we will keep the iOS stuff quickly out of scope and we will focus on the on the Android stuff right now. And then the Android tooling had to be installed and yeah it was it was fun times, fun times. And I think if you could have a, a system like this, it would be easier because usually the, it it was not worth to do an image because I did these courses not super frequent. So usually a few months passed, so a few updates were there. And you would have always had to update all the systems and then make sure they're in check. And yeah. But I, I can see I can see the this uh, approach also being great for those those things. But I think As you mentioned before, Gerald, uh, some things are right now not really possible. So probably that mobile course uh, using iOS is still a bit of a a chore to get it right the first time. Everybody with all the tools to be up and running. So what are your thoughts? Will you use this setup in any time or could you see using it? I mean, we are mobile developers, so probably not as a mobile developer. But if you would ever have to do some web development work, would this be something you wanted to check out? What are your thoughts?
1: I mean, obviously I've used it a little bit while working on GitHub code Codespaces, um, which was, you know, a lot, well, a lot. Um, I did some documentation things, which is also very great for um, because all the stuff, the Microsoft docs is is based on a repo, which is all markdown files. So it's now very easy to go in, fix that typo or the other kind of things and um, um, send a PR for that. That is, you know, one of those scenarios where you just have don't want to... Pull down the whole repository because you know there there might be a lot in the documentation there. Uh, pull it all down. I think they have this very nice extension for VS Code that will help you with some markup bits, so you can get the the, the preview and see if everything looks okay, and it will give you some hints about how to um, set up certain things in your markdown. And you know that extension is nice, but I don't have to have it loaded all the time. Um, so that is something that comes like pre-installed in your code space whenever you pull down a repository like that fix that typo, push the PR back. It's kind of done. You can throw away the environment. So that is one of the things that I've done a couple of times. And that it's what it's real ideal for um, another thing i've worked on is like a github action so again you know it's all so integrated at least looking at github code spaces of course it's so integrated in github so you pull it down all the github bits are there so it's very easy to start working on it um, and just push it back and and see from the github um, user interface if it actually does the right thing that you intended to do and of course you know i did some demos with with web stuff and, and cli stuff and then of things um, so yeah i i've, I've used it a couple of times. I think it's good for, you know, the the smaller kind of and specific types of projects. uh, Absolutely. What I did find, I don't use Visual Studio Code a lot myself. So it was kind of also getting used to Visual Studio Code and how that all works and looks and does things. So maybe that also kind of holds me back of, um, you know, actually, actually using it as my daily driver. And what the really cool thing is, well, a little peek inside here, Code Spaces is developed with codespaces. So we're actually running um, the 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 codespaces things to develop the whole code spaces solution. So that's hmm. kind of cool as well. Um, You can imagine there's quite a few things um, um, spinning there whenever you spin up the environment. Um, A couple of REST web API kind of things and a client and all kinds of things. And that then all runs in the cloud. I've actually benefited from that because my machine wasn't the most fast one. So, you know, at some point I was literally running into kind of like a use case where the resources weren't enough anymore. Um, So instead of getting me a full new machine, I could just switch to code spaces in code spaces and uh, I could run it. on in the cloud. So that was was pretty amazing.
2: I'd, I must admit, I uh, I only have been dabbling in Visual Studio Code with all the web stuff and in Visual Studio for Mac with all the Xamarin stuff. And in the rest of my day-to-day, I don't typically need that kind of setup yet. Maybe one day, but not right now.
0: Mark, you? So it's a bit same for me. I haven't been using it a ton, but I somehow just find this very alluring, this thought that I could have a super beefy dev environments whenever I need it. Or as Gerald mentioned, maybe uh, there is some process that I need some tools for, and I've already got like everything nicely prepared for those few steps, and then I can throw it again away. Or I once in a lifetime, huge amounts of RAM need it for I don't know what, and then I can just easily upgrade my cloud-based machine to run my dev environments on. It's got its allures, and I'm also finding it quite cool remembering when Visual Studio Code first came out how all the IntelliSense was somehow routed over a web service that was hosted on the same computer, so it was actually not, like I think, within the Visual Studio Code, and how these things now seem to be really working nicely together and enabling a lot of use case scenarios. Me, I'm still doing a ton of mobile stuff, so right now, I'll be sticking with the beefier IDEs, uh, then Visual Studio Code. But uh, yeah, maybe maybe one day I'll have some spare time at hand. Silently so laughing here, and uh, I'll, I'll then I'll then give it a go and do some some web development because I think for web development there is nothing holding you back today to not try it out and, and make your experiences with it. And I think uh, not having to always. Uh, Clean up my computer after n months of uh, working on various projects. Uh, well, yeah, it's I can see I can see that uh, alluring bits of, of using these things. And with that, I think you have heard all of our thoughts for the moment, at least on virtual death environments. We have been your hosts, Mark Alibone, Stephen Davison, and Gerald Slade. And let us know what are your thoughts on this thing. Will you ditch your? Laptop and buy an iPad and just remote death into everything in the future, or are you sticking to a laptop? Have you already used it? Tell us at Nullpointers.io on Twitter. Our DMs are open. We would really like to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Stay safe, and until next week on Nullpointers.